Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Thank you so much for being here as always. It is an honor and a pleasure. Uh, And phones are open, 844-900-2825. You know, we, we couldn't even get through the weekend without the uh, narrative, the big story out there, the big media focus going from uh, it, it couldn't even stay on one Russia story. It had to go from one Russia story to another. It went from the Trump, uh, the Trump Putin meeting, which I have to say, based on all the different assessments of it. Experts must not really know anything, because depending on which expert, which pundit you read, it was either fine, it was either statesmanlike, or it was the most embarrassing, uh, preposterous, you know, s- stepping on the, uh, you know, stepping on the on the broom, or I guess the rake and hitting yourself in the face with it. I mean, it, you know, it's just, it was atrocious, or or it was great. I don't, it depends on who you ask. Even though we didn't really know what was said in the meeting anyway, it went on for two hours and. We had some back and forth afterwards. I suppose the uh, the main problem people had with it had to do with whether or not uh, Trump pushed hard enough on the Russian uh, the Russian meddling issue, and we had a uh, Reince Priebus over the weekend out there doing the uh, communications, making the communications rounds, and he said. That, uh, well, first of all, Donald Trump did not believe Putin's denials about not being involved in the election. Uh, remember, it's not election tampering. It's it's perception. It's pre-election perception manipulation or or meddling or interference or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can say it. But it's really just a... Uh, a, a propaganda campaign uh, aided by the release of some emails, right? That, that's what we're talking about here. There was no actual hacking of voting machines, which I think needs to be repeated because I, fu- I come across people who are otherwise very well-informed and seem to know what's going on, and they will say, uh, you know, the whole hacking of the election. I say, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, the election was hacked, and that's a very sloppy term. I think people use it intentionally because it sounds more nefarious than what the facts warrant. But, okay, back to uh, Mr. Priebus. So you got White House Chief of Staff over the weekend, you know, hitting the Sunday shows, and there was, a, there was all this pushback over whether Trump accepted the, uh, the Putin denial of uh, involvement in what Russia was up to, and here is how that went. The president absolutely did not believe uh, the denial of, of President Putin. What the president did is he immediately came into the meeting, 
talked about Russian meddling in the U.S. election, went after that issue at least two separate times. This was not just a five-minute piece of the conversation. This was an extensive portion of the meeting. And after going at it with President Putin more than once, two times, maybe even three times, the president at that point, after spending a large part of the meeting on the subject, moved on to other topics. So, so to be clear, like Syria he does not and ISIS and the And Ukraine. we're going to get to that. He does not accept Putin's denial he believes the Russians meddled. He's, he's answered this question many times. He said they probably meddled in the election. They did meddle in the election. The one thing that he also says, which drives the media crazy, but it's an absolute fact, is that others have as well. That's not acceptable to say, though, to the media. They don't want to hear that. You, you have to just agree. It's like climate change. Do you believe in climate change? Yes or no? No, no complicated answers, no nuance, no hedging, none of that, right? You got to get right into it right away and, and give them the answer that they want to hear. But the Putin meeting, that was Friday's Russia story. You know, Russia, Russia, so much stuff about Russia. That was Friday. Uh, by the weekend, we already, we had the New York Times with really a, uh, a preview of a story that they must have already had, but they wanted to extend it out in the news cycle about a meeting with a lawyer, a meeting with a Russian lawyer that occurred right after Trump had clinched the nomination for the uh, GOP. And Donald Trump Jr. Uh, has confirmed that back in June of 2016, he met with a Russian lawyer. Now, I will say that the explanations for this are, and and so thus far have been kind of, hmm, um, I don't think it's what the media wants to make it into, which of course is, oh, this is more evidence of collusion, uh, this is more of, there's more smoke here, uh, or I shouldn't say more evidence of collusion, this is evidence of collusion, this would be the first time that there's any actual collusion, and... They can't prove that, but they're at least insinuating it. They're they're making the uh, the allegation, the not so subtle uh, hinting at this. And uh, Reince Priebus also wanted to talk about this yesterday because it's been the main it's been the main news story for most of today. That this meeting with a Russian lawyer uh, with Donald Trump Jr. back in June 2016, Paul Manafort, who's the guy doing some political. Uh, consulting work in Ukraine for Russian-backed political parties and or or political parties with ties to Russia, perhaps we should say. And uh, also, I think there was one other person who was in the... Oh, yes. And uh, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. This really is a family operation we've got going here. Uh, here is what... Here's Reince's explanation, or at least here's what Reince had to say about this meeting... Uh, with this w Russian lawyer. It was a very short meeting. It was a meeting apparently about a Russian adoption. Uh, and after about 20 minutes, the meeting ended. And that was the end of it. And, and as far as non-disclosure, look, Jared Kushner uh, put in his disclosure a little prematurely. He's since amended it. All of that is disclosed. And it was a nothing meeting. And now, what's developing from that meeting, if you look at the uh, article that Circa put out, uh, is that the individual that set up the meeting may have been affiliated with Fusion GPS, which is a opposition research firm that is being uh, subpoenaed and talked to by the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, about their role in putting together that phony dossier that people know about in regard to the president. So this is a developing story. 
I don't know much about it other than it seems to be on the end of the Trump individuals, a big nothing burger, but may spin out of control for the DNC and the Democrats. Okay, so he's saying here that this group may have pushed this person, this Russian lawyer, to just get a meeting with the Trump people. Uh, I don't I don't really see I, mean, I don't know. Right. But that doesn't really seem to make all that much sense to me. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, you're not getting the most forthright and uh, clear descriptions and, and explanations of everything that's going on here. So here, but that doesn't matter to the the Democrats because, of course, just the fact that there was this meeting is all they need to go to take the dial to 11 on Russia collusion stuff. So here's House Intelligence Committee member Adam Schiff. He's jumping all over this topic. We're going to want to question everyone that was at that meeting about what was discussed. Uh, you know, by trying to frame it as about adoptions, it ignores what what it sounds like the meeting may have really been about, and that is the Magnitsky Act. Uh, which is legislation, very powerful sanctions legislation that goes against Russian human rights abusers. Uh, So if this was an effort to do away with that sanctions policy, uh, that is obviously very significant. If they're talking to the president's team, the then candidate Trump's team, that contradicts, of course, what the president and his people have said about whether they were meeting with any uh, representatives of the Russian government. Uh, this is this this is now a representative of the Russian government. I mean, this is do we know that? It seems that uh, Adam Schiff is is saying that, um, and uh, there's no there's no proof yet that that is the case. They they refer to her in the news reports that I see here as a a lawyer with Kremlin ties, which I just want to point out that saying that someone has such and such ties, especially when you're talking about government ties and in, in a place like Russia is not all that descriptive. Um, but again, I, I think that if what we know now is the case, which is or what we've been told now, which is that this woman said, I've got some stuff that I need to talk to you about, uh, that, okay, she had a meeting. She had a meeting with some of, some of Trump's people. Remember, it's not with Trump himself. It's with some people on the campaign, uh, his son and his son-in-law. So uh, powerful faith. And the campaign chairman. I'm not pretending that this was... They didn't send out the intern and say, you know, here's a here's an information packet. We hope you donate, you know, vote Trump. Uh, This was clearly somebody who had some means of getting a sit down. uh, But we don't we don't have all the facts yet about how that was arranged and what the real what the real purpose was. I just want to note that a meeting with a person who is a, a Russian national is all that the media needs for there to be wall to wall coverage of this. Uh, once again, and I just think it's kind of funny. You had a Robbie Mook, who was Hillary Rodham Clinton's former campaign manager, uh, saying that, you, you know, all the goodwill the media has towards the Trump administration, all of the passes that the media gives Trump, all the. Yeah, maybe, maybe, he says that should end probably. At what point do we stop giving the benefit of the doubt here? Um, we ju- the, the evidence here of these close ties with Russia continue to mount with each and every day. But then secondly, what's particularly concerning to me is we are seeing it play out in actual policy. And you mentioned uh, Don Jr. was in the meeting. So is Jared Kushner, who is now a government employee. He is a senior advisor to the president, an official in the government. Uh, and somebody's got to step in and make sure that our foreign policy is not being overtaken by Russian influence. 
Well, that seems like quite a quite a statement. Overtaken by Russian influence. Um, you, you should know that I love this. Giving the benefit of the doubt. When has the media ever given this administration the benefit of the doubt? When has there been even journalistic good faith from the media with regard to how they treat the Trump White House? Uh, it's never existed, and, and it never happens. It's not like it was there and then it's gone. It has never been there. So I think it's a, fu- it's a funny framing of the issue uh, that you have a former Hillary person here saying that, oh, you know, they, they need to stop being so so sweet and, and friendly towards the Trump administration because of the latest information that we have here. I mean, it's just complete and uh, and utter nonsense uh, to as far as I can see. Um, no surprises there. So, yeah, there was a meeting. We'll find out more about this meeting. I, I don't see this as uh, as a big deal. I, I do. Want to note that there were people over the weekend in the journalist establishment who, before we knew that much about this, were already saying, see, everything we've been telling all along is true. This sounds like a, a nothing meeting. I would want to note, uh, or, or, or I think we should note, what could have been discussed in here that was so worthwhile and so important? Let's bring it all back again. So she says she has damaging information on Hillary Clinton. Okay. Wouldn't wouldn't you want to meet with somebody who says they have damaging information? I mean, look at the look at the shady characters and and the uh, the different tricks and the different underhanded tactics the Hillary campaign was trying. Look at the dossier. Look at what was being done to try to undermine the Trump campaign to try to eliminate Donald Trump from the presidential race. Figure out some way to make him so. Uh, politically untouchable that he would have to drop out, right? Or to, to, to destroy his reputation or to force his base to abandon him. They were, they were paying guys to pull together information that was complete nonsense, totally defamatory and baseless. This is, look, this is the, the nasty stuff that goes on in the modern political environment. So if someone is claiming to have bad information about Hillary Clinton— yeah, I, I think that they may. I think they may get a meeting if they have someone to vouch for them in the process, and it sounds like they did. But Russia collusion is it? Is it collusion if someone sits down with the Trump campaign officials and and uh, is willing to listen to what they have to say? That's not collusion. I, I just I don't see it. I still don't see it. Maybe I'm missing something, but you know, let me know if you think that there's a, a, a component of this that is escaping my attention. 844-900-2825-844-900 Buck. Team hitting a quick break. Got a lot of show to cover. We'll be right back. All right, uh, Don in Ohio on WHLO. What's up, Don? Hey, Buck, how you doing? I'm good, man. Thank you for calling in. Good. Yeah, you know, I'm so – they are frustrated with this. They are just grasping the straws at this point. It's just – it's so frustrating. But let me ask you this. Assuming Russia did something, okay, my question is this. Why is it pointed to Trump? I would think common, – common thought would be it would be pointed more towards Bernie Sanders because if Russia wanted anyone to be in charge of the White House, it would be Bernie Sanders. And back then – if you remember, Podesta's emails were hacked. I'm not saying by Russia, but they were hacked, and it became public knowledge in March of last year. Well, Hillary didn't secure the nomination until June. And if if Russia wanted to get anyone out of the race, I would think it would have been Hillary to prop up um, Bernie Sanders, who's very friendly with Russia, you know? 
and I don't understand he, why he did in fact honeymoon in the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet right. Union. Everybody, that that's where he went on his honeymoon. You know, hopefully exactly. he brought his own toilet paper. Not not a fun place to go on a honeymoon. <laughs> Him and Cheryl Crow, right? <laughs> one one square. <laughs> Cheryl Crow went there. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. The one square. She was proud. She wanted one square. Everybody to use one square of toilet paper. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, yeah. That's weird. Fair enough. Uh, so you were, you were saying. So you think that the Russia, uh, the Russia hack, was to help Bernie Sanders? Of course. I mean, who, who would be more friendly, policy wise, to Russia than to have someone like Bernie Sanders in there, hmm. who is just to the left of a, of a communist? And at the time, if you remember. Everyone, including probably Russia, including if you had to hold a gun to Trump Jr.'s head, say, yeah, my dad is probably not going to win at that time. You know what I mean? No one even believed he was a serious candidate. You know, I mean, even though the 33 percent that were voting him and voting for him and all the primaries did, of course. But at full disclosure, I was a I was a cruise guy. You know what I mean? So even, you know, most uh, majority of Republicans weren't in favor of of Trump and didn't really believe that he was even going to beat Hillary at that point. You know what I mean? So it's an interesting theory. I mean, I I also just think that this is I I think that this is getting much more. Thank you for calling in, Don. The the whole notion of the intrusion into the election. Let me just put let me just put this out there. If Hillary had won, there would be. No congressional hearings into the investigation, into the uh, election tampering or whatever, election interference. There would be no criminal investigations into this. We wouldn't be hearing anything about Russia. It would be the end of it. I mean, we certainly wouldn't be hearing about Russia election. Because, by the way, do you think that the media that's now constantly talking about Russia and elections and, uh, and collusion and dirty tricks and hacking, do you think— that they would want to talk about that a lot if Hillary had been Victor, because even if they were saying, oh, yeah, well, well, Russia was trying to help Trump, they would have to be admitting in the process that there was an ongoing effort by the Russians to try and do something in the election, which may have made the outcome different than it would otherwise have been. So that means that they would be silent about it, of course. And uh, we are, we see this, by the way. It's not even just the media. Barack Obama, when he was president, if Hillary was was down ten points, and there was this concern about Russian interference, does anybody really believe that he wouldn't have made a lot more noise about it? Of course, of course. There, there's nothing that is too sacred for the Democrats. Certainly not our our democratic institutions and our election processes. When it comes to their ability to maintain and hold power, there's nothing that's uh, too sacred for them. So I think that this is this is showing us a lot here. And, you know, another another Russia meeting that's that's out there and everyone's going to be talking about it for a couple of days. And I just look at this and say to myself, okay, so someone wanted to sit down and talk to the Trump people. They had a little meeting, didn't last very long, but. Why did they say initially that it was about adoption? That's the part of this that's... I do need someone to explain that to me, because I remember reading that, and that was the first report on it. Why was the Trump campaign saying it was first and foremost about that? He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Donald Trump tweets out the following earlier today. James Comey leaked classified information to the media... That is so illegal. 
Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, let's get into this for a minute, shall we? Because I know that this is where um, I, I, some people may be a little upset at me for this. But I come here, I speak the truth. Um, the, the, the reality or the truth of this tweet is that we don't, we don't know that yet. And I, I've got to tell you, if, if I were going to be placing bets in Vegas on this one, I would bet a lot of money. Um, actually, let's scratch that. I would bet a lot of what is my—I bet a high portion of my money, which is not a lot of money. So whatever that means, right? I, I would throw my, my uh, you know, three-digit life savings uh, into, the, into the pot. And it would be that Comey didn't share anything classified with the media. I mean, this is what this guy does for a living, everybody, is separate out classified from non-classified and what's prosecutable and what's not prosecutable— and he, here's the story, or he, here's what's what's reported in the Hill. And I'm going to walk you through this so that you know that this is not something that people should be spending a lot of time on because it's it's not going anywhere. This is this story so far, from what I know, is probably a bit of a nothing burger. But the president tweeted it out, and he, he's he's accusing the former FBI director of illegal conduct. I don't think did he say allegedly in here anything. I think he's just saying. Um, where does it? Yeah, James Comey leaked classified information to the media that is so illegal. I mean, maybe he knows something I don't know, but this is what we know so far based on the reporting from the Hill. Quote, more than half of the memos former FBI Director James Comey wrote as personal recollections of his conversations with President Trump about the Russia investigation have been determined to contain classified information, according to interviews with officials familiar with the documents. This revelation raises the possibility that Comey broke his own agency's rules and ignored the same security call security protocols that he publicly criticized Hillary Clinton over in the waning days of the 2016 presidential election. Uh, all right, folks, let's let's just let me break this one down for you because I understand. Unlike a large majority of the people that are opining, on the subject of uh, classified and all that, um, I actually have some knowledge of this stuff, uh, having having held a, a high level clearance in the past. Although it's been a while, so thankfully I'm I'm, I'm a free man. I'm a, I'm a uh, just just a civilian now, which is good. No longer in the agency. Um, but back to the memos here. So okay, some memos may let, let's say there are seven memos and three of them had classification markings on them. Four of them didn't. Well, if Comey gave one of the four that are unclassified, and keep in mind, he's the one doing the classifying here. So there's really no—it uh, would be very hard—I should say, it'd be very hard to make a case that he's done anything improper. Remember, I'm talking about from a criminal classification standpoint. In terms of FBI regulations, yeah, I, th I, th I think he figured I'm not in the FBI anymore, and they're not going to bother me, and what are, what are they going to do, come after my, you know, come after my pension? I mean— He's probably right, by the way. And, I, and again, this is now what people want to hear. You listen to other radio hosts, they're going to tell you, oh, Comey, it's just a matter of time before he's, you know, sitting in a cell somewhere. Nope, that's not going to happen. So uh, the FBI is not going to discipline him after departing for violating uh, violating protocol. That that would be an in, in a internal disciplinary matter, I would think. Look, I was never FBI, and we could get somebody who's former FBI maybe wants to come in and tell me differently. That's fine. But uh, I, I do know that 
you know, from within the CIA side of things, there's the stuff that you could do that, you know, that, that could get you sent to prison. And there's the stuff that you could do that could get you suspended or fired. Right. And, and those are not the same. And I'm sure that's true at the FBI uh, as well. So on the criminal classification side of things, meaning that a violation of classified protocols would be possibly prosecutable as a criminal act. I don't see this. I don't see this because uh, Comey's not. You could say a lot of things about him. I don't think he's a dumb guy, everybody. I think we can all agree he's not a dumb guy. I think he's very self-righteous. I think he's a grandstander. I think that he's uh, willing to throw anybody under the bus to advance his own. the, The narrative of Comey as the great FBI man. But I don't think that he's a dumb guy at all. And uh, he would not think about this. He's admitting publicly that he gave a memo to a professor, doesn't have a clearance. And I'm, I think, I'm assuming doesn't have a clearance. I don't know. But I mean, I'm usually, I mean, it's just the guy's a professor at a university, not a government employee. But anyway, he's giving information to this professor who then uh, is giving the information to the New York Times. I don't think Comey's saying, yeah, I handed a classified memo to my buddy who uh, gave it in substance verbally Remember, they didn't give the physical document, but that that doesn't matter all that much. Uh, but the the overwhelming likelihood here is that Comey uh, either spoke about the unclassified portions, uh, or rather Comey's intermediary here, this professor, uh, spoke about the unclassified portions of the document to the press. The only way that Comey maybe gets uh, gets jammed up here is if he gave a classified memo to the intermediary professor guy and the professor, whose name I'll pull up here in a second, I think, uh, and the professor says, uh, or the professor had possession of the classified information, did not have a clearance, and then verbalized unclassified portions of it to the New York Times. Then Comey could be, then, then Comey could be in trouble, uh, not... You know, long time in federal prison trouble, probably, but he could be he could definitely be in some trouble. So that's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible, folks. I'm just telling you the overwhelming likelihood here. Just because the left runs runs out there with unsourced stuff and comes to conclusions that are false and is lying all the time doesn't mean that we can abandon what we know to be true, what we know to be reality and just play their game the exact same way. I know we got to we got to fight back hard. I understand that. And that's why a lot of you give a tremendous leeway to Trump to do so, including um, acting out in ways that are, are not traditionally considered within the standards of presidential decorum. I think we could say that. Uh, but he's in, he's in a fight. He's in a street fight against the media. I understand that. Right. And, and you're in a street fight. Sometimes you got to throw headbutts. Trump Trump throws headbutts, he throws elbows, you know, he'll throw the nearest trash can, whatever he's got to do. He, that's how he fights against the media. Uh, but I, I don't see Comey getting in, in trouble here. Uh, so I just want to go and let you know that right away. There's, it is over, I think it's 95% would be the likely I give that Comey did not share any classified information with his uh, with the friend and who then shared it with the New York Times because also the information keep in mind we we've heard what the information is and a discussion about how Trump would like the FBI director to proceed about a case that's not going to fall under that's not going to be classified 
I mean, as far I mean, unless I'm missing something. I mean, as far as I know, that, that's not going to be classified. Um, it's improper. It's bad protocol. It's unethical to have shared it in the way that Comey did, for sure. But remember, there's a difference between unethical and criminal. And uh, that's something we have to keep in mind with this. Speaking of which, now I've got to transition to the other side. I have been somebody who has uh, been unwilling to run out there and get ahead of the facts on the uh, Jane Sanders investigation, right? Uh, The Jane Sanders investigation by the FBI. This is Bernie Sanders' wife, who was the president of Burlington College uh, up up in Vermont. Burlington's a fun little town, by the way, if you ever get a chance to hang out there. You know, you go play some hacky sack, eat some Ben and Jerry's, you know, smell some interesting smells on the streets from the in the air from things that are maybe being you know from incense obviously i'm referring to uh but it's a it's a cute town burlington i I do like it um anyway federal prosecutors according the washington post have presented evidence against sanders before a grand jury i didn't want to be one of these people who's like oh let's just let's let's do what the left does let's just try to Let's hope that our political enemies get criminally prosecuted for minor stuff. Well, the more you know that I just didn't want to get ahead of it, but now the facts are coming out on this, and it's not looking not looking good right now. Uh, so the post is saying that federal prosecutors have confirmed that evidence has been presented before a a grand jury. This just in today. And that she tr- she got a six point seven million dollar bank loan in twenty ten to finance uh, an expansion of Burlington College campus, and as I understand it, um, this was so she could purchase property that was owned by the, actually the Catholic Church uh, for ten million ten million dollars, and they Sanders on the loan application. Says this is according to the Washington Examiner. The college had 2.6 million in confirmed donations and anticipated an additional 2.27 million dollars. But according to a former trustee, the college had only raised 125 grand by the summer of 2011, uh, and that the college listed a million dollar donation as secured payment from a Burlington resident, even though she agreed to donate the money when she died, and she is very much alive. This resident. So I, I gotta tell you, um, I, I'm now I'm now switching over into the. Uh-oh. Uh oh, I, I do think that fraud. It's interesting. Fraud against a bank, you go to prison for a long time. Bank fraud against the American people on a systemic and uh, and widespread scale with the mortgage meltdown crisis. That you know that's like eh. They'll pay some fines. No one goes. No one really goes to prison though. But that's a discussion, I suppose, for another day. But look, if you if you applied for a mortgage, everybody, if you applied for a mortgage and you said that you had a a half a million dollars of income a year by, you know, I don't know, from your blog, that would, by the way, that would be an amazing blog. You'd have to have like that'd be like the best blog ever. But you have a million dollars from your blog. And it turns out you're actually making like like five K a year from your blog. Uh, and you got that loan, you're you're gonna you're gonna be in trouble. Uh, that's that's a that's a big no no uh, to get a to get a big loan from to get a loan from a bank based on fake numbers. So look, this is still just an allegation. 
but the more I the more I see this, the more it it looks like uh, Miss Sanders could be in some in some real trouble. Bernie Sanders' wife, and whether uh, Sanders is involved in this or not, we will we will have to see. But this is a real investigation. It is a real criminal investigation. And while I'm somebody who thinks that generally speaking, uh, victimless financial crimes because they're politically very palatable because U.S. attorneys' offices really like to make examples of of white-collar criminals, even whether it's people that have uh, engaged in some form of fraud against a bank. Remember, it's not clear the bank has had any losses. I haven't seen that anywhere, but it's still fraudulent to present fake numbers to the bank. Uh, That all said, we all have to live with those laws. Just because she's Bernie Sanders' wife doesn't mean that she gets to live under a different set of laws. And I think that we could talk about legal reform and, and criminal justice reform, and it's something that is of great interest to me. But she looks like she might be in some trouble, everybody. Uh, this is not—the more I looked into the details, the more that's come out about this, I can tell you that uh, saying you got a few million in the bank when you got 100000 in the bank, if you're getting a loan—and it's a big loan, by the way—normal uh, people do go to prison for that. That is that is a thing that people go to prison for. Uh, it's certainly a a felony that is prosecutable, if that is in fact if that is in fact the case. Remember, in, innocent until proven guilty. I don't play the Democrat game of you know, Trump and his people are all guilty of treason without any evidence and without any trial and without any anything, right? But the, so I'm just saying the, the the Comey thing. I'm telling you to pump the brakes, pump the brakes. Jane Sanders though, no, I'm hitting the accelerator a little bit on that one. That's not looking good. We'll hit a quick break here. We'll be right back. It's in the Wall Street Journal about whether it is even possible that there will be bipartisan, uh, there'll be bipartisan conclusions to these uh, election meddling probes. Uh, I think, by the way, the answer to this is is almost certainly no. There will not be uh, bipartisan. Uh, this will not end up with, with bipartisanship. Uh, there will not be conclusions that are acceptable to both sides. And you've got, of course, the leaders of both committees. I mean, these these are politicians. Everyone, their life, their day to day is is politics, and they're conducting investigations of who should really, really, what the investigations about is should Donald Trump be the president. We, we can talk about everything else and, oh, and the, the, uh, the, the sanctity of the election process and preventing Russian hacking. And, oh, we're all terrified of Russian hacking now, I know. It's, it's like it's this new thing that just sprung up out of nowhere. But looking at this issue and trying to be honest about it, we should all understand that this is, for the Democrats, a, a referendum on the election. This is the congressionally mandated, taxpayer-funded equivalent of a virtual recall. That's what they're really trying to position this as. So it's a way to undo the results of the election. If they can just get enough damaging uh, damaging stuff pulled together, and I should note that includes from the Mueller probe, any prosecution of any individual tied to Trump for anything— uh, you'll notice that people have been asking a lot of questions the last few days about Jared Kushner's uh, disclosures to the government. It, I mean, he, he amended them and uh, about about any contacts that he has. He, he's amended them. And, and now people are saying, well, 
Is he getting special treatment? This is a problem across the government, you sh- I should note, that the very senior people get away with nonsense all the time. And the lower level people are the ones that suffer the consequences of even minor indiscretions and violations of rules. That's why when the uh, clamor for leak prosecutions gets loud enough, I, I get concerned, not because I think the people that leak really damaging stuff and, and know what they're doing and, and do it uh, knowing the harms that can come from that shouldn't be punished, but because th- that's how you end up with somebody who does something that you're like, that's even, you're, you go to jail for that? And, and all of a sudden, yeah, you know. Some, some nobody you've never heard of will be on the front page of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the uh, Wall Street Journal, you know, because, oh, it always had a, had a con- w- w- was authorized to speak to journalists, but had a conversation with journalists he wasn't supposed to. So employee from, you know, X department or whatever is, is now, you know, getting a 12 months or 18 months or something or whatever it is in prison. Uh, because that's just, the, unfortunately, the reality of, of bureaucracies, and, and that's the reality of power. Uh, but back to the Senate and ha- the Senate and House Intelligence Committee meetings. Uh, when people talk about how we're losing respect for our institution, or there's a loss of respect for institutions in this country, if we don't get to the bottom of the Russia hacking, I always want to tell. I always want to point out to them. You know what really undermines respect for institutions when the Department of Justice, under the Obama administration, with Loretta Lynch as the Attorney General. Uh, is is and or was so brazenly politicized uh, when you have every Democrat who is involved in any investigation uh, getting well ahead of the facts and putting forward completely unsupportable conclusions without any evidence meant to damage the Trump administration, and when there's nothing, there's really no such thing based on these investigations as a bipartisan inquiry into a foreign threat to our elections uh, because for Democrats it's really just about finding a way to undermine, uh, unseat, and destroy the Trump administration. The Freedom Hut rocks online too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, team. Great to have you with me. Thank you so much for uh, being here. I wanted to talk to you a little bit, if I could, about uh, all of the excuses that we are currently getting uh, from the Republicans on health care and how we're we're told right now, oh, you know, if, if for some reason, if for some reason it doesn't pass, then there'll be other things that we can uh, look forward to. Um, there'll be other things that we can get to right away. And, and I just feel like at what at what stage of this process are we allowed to say? Um, uh, are are we allowed to say that the Republicans have got to start doing some stuff uh, in the Congress, and they need to get something done soon? I mean, you got John McCain saying the following about the health care bill. Not- my view is it's probably going to be dead, but I am, I've been wrong. I, I thought I'd be president of the United States. <laughs> well, yes, he has, he has certainly been, been wrong in the past, but we've all been wrong. No need to take any, any cheap shots. Uh, we've all made our fair share of prognostications that did not, in fact, come true. But the GOP is now looking at this health care bill, and this is something that I think 
we're all focused on from a policy perspective because one it's not russia it's not a waste of time it's not just talking about stuff to talk about it it is uh, a place where we've seen a lot of promises made about the future of the republic about where the republican party is going to go and also a lot of promises made for the country and those promises are not being kept right now and I know that there's a, an inclination to give time to the administration to get a number of things done. I understand that. Uh, but if repeal and replace can't really happen, and if we're going to have another year of Obamacare and then another— if, if the Republicans in the Senate are not brave enough to defund Obamacare and their plan is just to let people suffer under Obamacare until there's a political will to change it— uh, I think they run on, into the possibility of the enough Americans saying, you know what, we're just fed up with this. Government can't do it. Government's already running the show anyway. The the drumbeat for single pa- for single payer will get louder and louder. That's what I think is likely to happen. Uh, here's what the here's what's uh, reported on Political right now. The GOP is struggling to revamp ailing Obamacare repeal bill. And a key disagreement with the, within the caucus centers on a conservative proposal from Mike Lee and Ted Cruz to slash Obamacare regulations. Uh, so you've got a couple of uh, senators who are clearly op- opposed to this. Mike Lee and, uh, and Ted Cruz are saying, look, the Obamacare regulations have got to go. And that's because I think those two senators in particular realize that if you leave in the federal government's ability to tell you wherever you are across the country what your health care plan has to cover. If the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, is making all the determinations about what your plan covers, well, then the free market is not really a thing that's particularly involved here, right? This is the government mandating uh, what has to be covered for an insurance policy and then the insurance companies just running the actuarial tables and figuring out what everyone needs to pay into this and then the government shoveling more money to some people based upon their income so that they can pay for some level of plan and i mean it's just we're we're moving the moving the deck chairs around here my friends but the the whole thing is still going down i mean the the, the ship is sinking it's sinking slowly and I think a lot of people are more scared about what would happen at this point if we had dramatic health care change than if we just continued on this current course, which is that's disconcerting in and of itself. Uh, but, I mean, the Republicans in the Senate, it's like they just got this dropped on them out of out of nowhere. This just fell in their lap. It's like, oh, Bob, do you see? I don't know why, whatever. Whatever I'm thinking of a random dude, it just Bob is the first thing. Oh, Bob. But, uh, oh, Bob, you see this thing that uh, this health care plan, this is crazy. This Obamacare thing. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I just got a copy dropped on my desk, too. Oh, it came out of nowhere. No, they've been saying for a long time now that they would repeal and replace this thing. They've been they've been promising that. That's what that is what we were told. We were not told that this was going to be a long term negotiation within Republican ranks over the. Um, future of what a multi-phased, multi-pronged repeal process could look like with a lot of taxpayer cash thrown into the process. So 
This is it's tough to get excited about it. It really is. And you already got Treasury Secretary, uh, Secretary uh, Mnuchin saying that it it just you got John McCain saying it might die in the Senate. You got Mnuchin saying we might have to move on to the next thing. The president's first priority is for the Senate, the House, to pass the plan. And uh, I, know, I know you have Senator Ted Cruz on right after me, and I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that his plan and his changes will, will get supported. And I, I think we'd like to get health care done. If we don't get this passed, then the president, as he said, will we'll go to the next plan. Now, to be fair, this is not the president that is failing. This is not his administration. That is, people will say he should be showing leadership. And does anyone think that, like, Obama was up really late at night during his presidency writing the thousands of pages of the Obamacare bill? You know, him and Nancy Pelosi were, you know, pu- pulling an all-nighter to try to stay up and write the bill. No, it was pulled together by left-wing interest groups over a long period of time. And uh, you know, Obama was out there selling it to the public. People say, well, Trump should be showing more leadership. He should be selling this to the public. Well, what's he selling? Exactly. I mean, he's he's trying to give some I think he's trying to create some space for Republicans to get creative and get this thing done. I think he's trying to make some moves here. But let's not let's not fool ourselves. OK, it's not even clear. How, how can you be a salesman for something if you don't even know what the product really is yet? And this is not a knock on Trump. You know, if I'm out there uh, and, and I'm you know, let, let's say I'm selling you a car. And you show up, and I'm like, "Hey, I've got a great, uh, I've got a great car for you here." And you're like, "All right, well, what's going to cost?" I'm like, "Somewhere in the neighborhood of fifteen to fifty thousand dollars." You're like, "Okay, well, is it, uh, is it, you know, uh, is it a, a seven passenger, four passenger, is it a coupe?" And a, well, it's uh, one of those things. Yes, for sure. I mean, it's not that uh, uncertain. We have some broad strokes of what the healthcare bill is going to be, and everything, but it's it's tough. Uh, it's tough for him, I think, to make a, a particularly strong case other than Obamacare is bad. But that's been the case for a long time. Everyone's been saying Obamacare is bad. What do we have here that's better? Long-term Medicaid reform? I mean, I've got my my wonk friends calling in saying, you know, who are who are big health care uh, experts saying, you know, this is great for the country long term. But nobody gets excited about and this is understandable, by the way. All right. No one gets excited about Medicaid savings to uh, the taxpayer in 2022 or whatever okay that that's not no one's like oh gosh you see what trump just did medicaid spending starting in the starting in the beginning of the of the next decade is considerably less of an increase in overall spending (laughs) i mean that's tough to get excited about you know one one problem i have with republicans one issue that comes up with them time and again is that they do not uh learn from the successful tactics of their opponents. You know, what, what what did Obamacare really come down? Yeah, I know there was a lot of speech. President Obama was giving speech after speech after speech on Obamacare. But when people thought about that bill, and yeah, I know they made, uh, I mean, I think it was unconstitutional, although you'll notice that Republicans have kind of abandoned that whole line. Whatever happened to like, let's march around with, you know, tri-corner hats and copies the Constitution in our pockets and the whole, you know, Obamacare was unconstitutional. I think it still is unconstitutional. You'll notice that everyone's like, yeah, we don't really need to, you know, that's not an argument we're going to make anymore. Why? Yeah, that hasn't, oh, because the Supreme Court ruled? That doesn't mean we can't say that we disagree. Supreme Court rules one way now, rules another way at some other point. Uh, You're still allowed to make the argument that you think they were in error. It was a 5-4 decision, everybody, right? I mean, it all came down to, 
Well, it all came down to Justice Roberts. Um, but I digress. Uh, but what you remember about Obamacare was that he was selling it as stay on your parents' insurance until you're 26 and uh, no pre-existing conditions. And I, really, by the way, the pre-existing conditions component was, I think, the single most compelling part of the whole thing. I think I think that's where uh, people were, you know, a lot of folks who were well-intentioned and trying to do the best they can and just can't spend all day reading about politics and focusing in on the stuff. We're like, well, I mean, pre-existing conditions, that sounds... Now, the reality, of course, is that a, a pretty small percentage of the population overall, I mean, overall, very small percentage of the population has a pre-existing condition that prevents them from getting any any health insurance. It, it, it was a real thing. I'm not saying it wasn't, but it's a very small percentage of the population such that you could have fixed that without having to affect all the rest of the market. But they used the emotional impact from that one component of a much larger debate in order to give cover to the rest of Obamacare, which is really just a a, a massive increase in uh, government bureaucracy, in government Decision making in the healthcare process, and just it's it's bad. I could go on for a long time about it, but we've got a lot of other stuff I want to cover here on the show. So, uh, Republicans, what are they selling right now? See that that's really what I get. You know, I've been looking for an apartment recently in New York City, which, by the way, is the most uh, I don't know. Depressing isn't really the right word. It's it's uh, very tense and uh, difficult, and it's it's a reminder that. You know, winning the lottery would be a really nice thing. You know, it could, I could move out of like a, a very expensive shoebox. But uh, you know, you're looking for an apartment. It's interesting. You, I see how people are trying to sell in a, in a way that is very real. You, you can, it's you know, gr- great location, steps from the subway. You know, that's the first thing you get, and they get you there. And hopefully, they they they're, or they're hoping rather that by the time you Figure out that uh, you know you, you you thought that that was the neighbor's dog, but it was actually a giant sewer rat. And you know, I mean, by the time you figure out that there are some big problems in this in this possible new home, you uh, and I'm exaggerating. I, guess I haven't seen any giant sewer rats looking around yet. But um, you never. It's New York City. I mean, I've had friends. I could tell you stories about what they've seen in their living rooms. Ground floor apartments in New York are quite an adventure sometimes. But you see how they sell, and then they hope to f- to fill in the details after it. And that's what they did with Obamacare. They sold you on the, you know, we're going we're gonna to cover everybody, and everyone's going to get coverage. And by the way, pre-existing conditions and stay on your parents' insurance until 26. And, th- and that starts right away. All the bad stuff we're going to delay till the very, very end. But, uh, and they've, by the way, they've pushed some of that even further out so that people don't have the, a full sense of the effects of the law. I bring this up because what are Republicans selling you? I mean, if, if this if this were an apart if the Republican health care plan was an apartment out of New York City, it would be place where you can live, totally more free market based than other apartments, but also some city incentives involved in stabilizing the rent process and will in the future save you money over the course of it. I mean, you know, what what am I what am I signing on the dotted line for here? What are the American people getting out of this? That's, it's, you know, it's not repeal and replace. That's not what we're getting. And when people ask, well, what are we getting? I don't know. The Republicans don't even know. 
So in a sense, I, I know that there's the, there's a, a desire, a willingness to create a little more leeway. Okay, they're figuring out Mitch McConnell's on it, right? I mean, whether that Mitch McConnell's on it, I mean, it's gonna, he's going to figure it out. And, uh, but whether that makes you feel better about it or not, I, I leave that to you. Uh, but we should know what the sales pitch is before we have to sign the lease on the health carrier. And, of course, they're going to sign it. The Republicans are the ones signing it. We're just we get to watch. But you see what I'm saying? What's the top line? What's the header? What's the why, why should we think that this Republican health care bill is a victory? And the answer is uh, uh, long term Medicaid savings. And it shores up the exchanges with additional funding from the taxpayer. That No, I'm sorry. Not not getting it done. Not good enough. I'm, I expect more from these members of Congress who seem to work, by the way. Uh, you know, they seem to have all read like the four hour work week, that book, and have taken it to heart. I'm just putting that out there. Hitting a quick break. We'll be right back. So Chelsea Clinton is uh, running around still getting involved in stuff. And uh, she recently, well, I I guess I I need to uh, first and foremost establish what the issue is before I tell you how Chelsea Clinton got involved. Ivanka took a role at the G20 standing in for her father at a meeting. And here's what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said. It's a pretty standard protocol that when the leader gets up, someone takes their seat, as Chancellor Merkel also pointed out and said that this was perfectly standard protocol. In fact, I think that we should be... uh, proud to have Ivanka sitting in that seat, considering particularly the topic at hand was part of her portfolio. If she didn't have the last name that she has, uh, I think she would be constantly celebrated instead of constantly attacked. And I frankly think it's a sad thing that they chose to go after her in that moment. Uh, I have to say that even the most ardent Trump defenders I know, um, some of them are uh, a little shy about going too far to defend the way the uh, administration, well, the way this this White House has elevated family members into official positions. I, I'm 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 just keeping it real, everybody. So it, it is a little. It feels something. It feels a little little not so great. It does not feel. Uh, fantastic. Um, I I just want to be fair and clear with that. I don't think that it is um, something that I I would not advocate for. I'll put it that way. But then you get Chelsea Clinton getting involved in this. And I have to say, Chelsea Clinton, if she had uh, charisma, if she was in any way a viable option for public office, meaning she'd have to actually win people's votes, not just be accepted by, because she is accepted by virtue of her last name still, by the elites, by the media. As we know, she was paid, I think it was over $600,000 by NBC to be a special correspondent. She was on TV for like 15 minutes. If if you didn't uh, ever actually see it, uh, I got to tell you, it's worth going back to watch. You could, wherever you are in the country right now listening, uh, you could go into a, whatever the closest pub or bar is, and you could find somebody right, right now 
who would do a better job on TV than than uh, Chelsea Clinton did. I, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it was, it was. People think that TV is just something you do, and I will I will tell you that TV, radio, certainly writing, these are all different forms of media, but there are skill sets that are specific to them that are involved. And a lot of people who think they're going to be good at TV because, you know, they just watch a lot of TV or they see people doing analysis on TV are terrible. And she was awful. But she's responded to this. Uh, She responded to Mr. Trump suggesting that uh, she would have been praised for standing in for Hillary Clinton at the meeting, right? So some people, so he said, look, if Hillary stood in, or sorry, if Chelsea stood in for Hillary, everybody would say it's great. By the way, I think that's true, that the media would be all in favor of it. And then she wrote, Chelsea wrote, or tweeted, whatever, wrote on Twitter, good morning, Mr. President. It would never have occurred to my mother or father to ask me, were you giving our country away? Hoping not. I do not think this is where uh, Chelsea Clinton wants to take the discussion. I I think that she is going to find herself in a uh, very uh, uncomfortable debating position when she starts talking about giving away the country. I mean, her mother, the Clinton Foundation, Bill Clinton, the... uh, I still think that, by the way, that the Trump administration should assign, you know, we want to do special counsels. Forget the Trump administration. The Department of Justice should assign a special counsel to look into all the Clinton Foundation's dealings. That. Forget about the email even for a second, although I know people want that to be opened as well. The Clinton Foundation investigation, if it had real federal resources, if it had uh, subpoena power and it was unlimited funding, that would make for some very interesting reading. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. we got David French joining us now. He's a senior writer for National Review, an attorney and a a veteran of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. David, great to have you back, sir. Thanks so much for having me back. I appreciate it. All right, let's talk about uh, your latest piece in National Review. The Washington Post seeks a right-wing scapegoat for left-wing violence. This uh, this was one that I saw the initial headlines over the weekend about this, and I thought, nah, not even the not even the Washington Post would would go this route. But but no, they did. Tell everybody what happened. Yeah, this is one of the craziest stories I've ever read. So you know, we had we had this this left wing, hard left Bernie Sanders supporter who went and attacked the GOP baseball practice. Uh, a person unquestionably a man of the left, unquestionably influenced by leftist thought, unquestionably part of left-wing Facebook groups. I mean, this just isn't in doubt. And so the mainstream media, or in this instance, the Washington Post did what it sometimes does when there's a mass shooter, goes back to their hometown, tries to break down where they come from, what what influenced them. And the Post did that, except it focused on a right-wing radio host as being this really inflammatory guy who some Democrats listen to but they don't really know who, and they don't really know how many people listen to him, and they don't have any idea if the shooter actually listened to him. But they found this really angry right-wing radio host, and they profiled him for, ah, gosh, I think around 1,800 words. It was remarkable. It, it, was, it was as if, well, there, the left-wing shooter, there had to be – there was a left-wing shooter, but there had to be some right-wingers involved some way, somehow. So let's find the most extreme right-wing voice we can find in this community and highlight him. It was – it. 
it's puzzling. I gotta say, I work in radio, and I guess people would say right wing radio, one level or another. I've never even heard of this guy before. So to me, oh. I'm like, it's one thing when you find like Alex Jones and try to say that he's representative of those on the right. And I mean, at least the guy does have a following, as 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 uh, right. crazy and and irresponsible as he is, he does have a following. I've never even heard of Bob Romanik. No, I, I'd never heard of this guy at all. I don't think anybody had heard of him much. I mean, this is a guy that the literally the Washington Post made him famous. Uh, made him famous as playing what? Some kind of role uh, in this Bernie Sanders supporter's life? And there was no evidence that he did. But, I mean, no David, you, you know a lot of liberals. I know a lot of liberals. We hang out with liberals all the time. Uh, what do you think the discussion is like in the Washington Post editorial uh, conference room when they're like, yeah, I got an idea. Let's talk about the left-wing Bernie Sanders uh, attempted mass assassination through the lens of an obscure right-wing talk host who we can't prove had any connection to anything whatsoever. I mean, do, do you think they do this knowing that it's a distraction and that it just appeals to the base? Or do you think that the folks over the Washington Post are are deluded in some way and, and think that this is a valid connection to draw? Or a combination? I would go more with the diluted, but with, with some degree of combination, maybe. Uh, I mean, you know this. I mean, you've talked to people on the left who are absolutely, totally convinced that right, right-wing conservative talk radio has made America into a tinderbox, that uh, Americans are just ready to explode at the drop of a hat because of conservative talk radio. I mean, this is an article of faith. I mean, I've, I've had people talk to me. Uh, as if, you know, Rush Limbaugh is about to re- in a recite, uh, incite a rebellion. I mean, it, it really is amazing the sort of way in which people view conservative talk radio, view Fox News in this ideological bubble. And so, you know, way they go and they, they it's an article of faith that this kind of discourse leads to violence in spite of the lack of evidence. And And so, you know, I think part of it is this there's just this article of faith that right-wing communication leads to violence, that conserve, angry conservatism leads to violence, and you're going to try to jam a square peg into a round hole. Well, you're familiar with, with, with gaslighting, right, where— it, oh, yeah. you, you say something that and the, the left loves it, loves to throw this out there. Uh, and some of their terms are kind of used to, like norm, normalizing has now been a fun term to appropriate for conservative right. causes. Uh, but gaslighting is, an, is another one. I think that what we've seen, whether it's the nation talking about how the right and you point this out in your piece on National Review and for everyone listening, we're speaking to David French of National Review. Uh, that saying that the saying after an attempted mass assassination of Republican congressmen by a left by a clear left wing zealot that the right has a a monopoly on political violence is the journalistic equivalent of gaslighting the right. I think it's it's yeah. we're saying something that's so outrageous and so crazy that it has to be intentional. It's meant to be offensive. Well, yeah, the Nathan that Nathan article I put in a different category from the Washington Post article. I mean. The Nation article even went so far as to essentially call what jihadist violence is conservative violence because it's coming from a more conservative wing of Islam, which you just can't even translate those terms into domestic political arguments when you're talking about jihadism. I mean, it was crazy. So, you know, yes, I think on the Nation, it was just deliberately avoiding uh, contrary facts for the sake of creating right-wing boogeymen. And that's not to say that there aren't you know, there isn't some right-wing violence out there. There's a troubling amount of white supremacist violence, and that's sort of been something that's troubled America for a long time. But 
That's nothing to do with the mainstream of the GOP, nothing at all. And, and so there's just this continual effort to sort of pull violent uh, – assign responsibility for violent actions with mainstream GOP discourse or with mainstream or you know, even sort of ra- angry radio discourse, and there's no evidence to support it. Instead, they should have looked and faced the facts of this actual shooter and then analyzed what happened with this actual shooter. How, how hard is that? For everyone listening, uh, g- to give you a definition of gaslighting, the term I used, it's manipulating somebody, if you just throw it on Google, manipulating somebody by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. So if any of you ever had an older <laughs> sibling who would, like, punch you in the arm and then say, I didn't punch you, that's kind of like gaslighting. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and it can be much more insidious than that, but it's it's when something is very clear, but someone's saying to you, oh, no, that's not what's happening. And clearly when the left is writing that the, that the right has a monopoly on political violence after what we've been discussing, I mean, I, I think gaslighting is an appropriate term. Uh, David, I, I wanted your take on, because, you know, you're, you're fair-minded, but not, uh, you're fair-minded and not afraid to say both when you think that the, the Trumpers are uh, getting themselves into some trouble, as well as when people are making way too much out of it and, and being unfair to, to the Trump side. Uh, what do you make of the Russia meetings? Or the Russia meeting, I should say. Strange. Strange. Like, I, I can't figure out what this story is about. I mean, are we talking about... Uh, it, it, it doesn't make much sense to me. I feel like I'm left with just needing more information. Was it actually true that Donald Trump Jr. was going to meet with a Russian on the grounds that uh, he thought that that Russian had damaging information on Hillary Clinton and then kind of thought it was a nothing burger because she didn't? That... it. it I, 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 let me just put it this way. I read that article, and I think the first thing that comes to my mind is I need more detail. <laughs> I need more content. Yeah, well, that's, it's funny. That's what I was saying different. at the start of the show. I, I was I like to try to give a, an insightful uh, conclusion about these things, or at least in, in some insightful analysis. And on this one, I, I feel the same way. I feel like there's there's a lot of unanswered because the initial story about how it was all about adoption then transitioned and uh, into its uh, there maybe was some effort by people tied to an oppo research firm to run this woman as a uh, a disinformation operation of some kind to the i mean you saw that i think ryan's previous himself yeah. was saying that yeah yeah there's no there's no and I apologize for the sound of a bird. I'm in California right now. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, but there was uh, the, the information is all over the place about this. Um, and so, you know, with so many issues with the Russian investigation, what you end up with that, that filters out into the public square, you feel like you're sort of the proverbial blind man feeling parts of the elephant. And then you're, you don't know the full picture of what you're, what you're grasping. You don't even know really substantially part of it what part of it even is and yet then you're beginning you're asked to sort of opine on the whole thing and and that's where we've been for months and months and months on this uh i will say that nothing about uh, meeting with a russian uh in an effort to gain damaging information on an american political candidate sits well with me but i don't have any greater you're a lawyer nothing nothing illegal about it either right i mean that you're i mean nothing that we know of that would be illegal no, nothing. I, I can't. I can't think of a statute that's violated there. Um, it seems odd that you would have meet with a random Russian lawyer who claims that, to have that that serious a campaign firepower being brought into that kind of meeting. It seems a little bit weird. But again, you're just sort of taking stabs in the dark. 
There yeah. doesn't, we don't have contacts. We don't have enough information. Fair enough. David French, everybody. National Review is where he writes. He's a senior writer over there. Check out his latest, nationalreview.com. David, always appreciate the time, sir. Have a good one. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, 844-900-2825. Uh, is Western civilization something that we aren't allowed to talk about anymore? Well, I mean, we're going to here, of course, but is this now a topic that is uh, supposed to be the province of of the alt-right? It's a crazy question, but it's one that maybe we have to ask just because the left is making that case pretty openly now. Uh, we, we have to address this. They like to pose, uh, they, like, they like to position themselves as people who will call out those who defend Western civilization. Now, I, I'm, I have to say, I am somewhat flabbergasted by this, but it is true. And so we should discuss, and we will, right after the break. In, in leftist political circles these days, to look for nuance and to explain and to uh, extrapolate on, to pull apart all the different meanings, flavors, uh, iterations of jihad, right? Most of us hear jihad and we're like, oh, you mean like the holy war that is an, obli- that is an obligation for uh, Muslims, right? That's... And then, and then you'll have someone who will show up I- invariably uh, and will tell you, oh, that's that's a terrible um, that's a terrible version of what jihad is. That's not true. You're wrong. And, and for you to say that, you're probably an orientalist, which is a term that is still sometimes used uh, for uh, people that other other eyes, those from the Middle East and from well, the not West. Uh, Orientalism, also the the title of a book written by Edward Said, a very uh, well-known academic. I think he taught at Columbia University. uh, Well-known academic that is beloved by, he passed away some years ago, beloved by Middle Eastern studies departments across the country. By the way, if you want a book about how institutions, particularly the uh, university campuses, and even the U.S. government have a, 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 a propensity for experts who are favorable towards uh, Islam who cover the region, uh, even at the expense sometimes of, well, what I think would be good sense and U.S. interests. You can read a book called The Arabists, uh, which I would, I would recommend. You actually have it at home on my shelf. And it, it explains to you how, well, people that go through the Middle East and studies departments and universities and then work in government on the Middle East tend to have a certain view. And I know, and it's not necessarily reflected at the very top level because, of course, there's a, a very pro-Israeli policy that is largely bipartisan. Um, you, know, you look at the Obama administration, Obama clearly didn't particularly like Israel but there was still the, all, the, the there's still the foreign aid to Israel, and the relationship was strong. It just wasn't as strong. I mean, the U.S. Israel relationship was very strong. The Obama Netanyahu, the Obama Israel relationship, that was not very strong at all. Um, but anyway, I Linda Sarsour, <laughs> that's how I got on this. Who I'm lear- I'm reading more and more about these days. I try to avoid spending too much time on the uh, care spokespersons and it's just it's always the same routine right it's a lot of woe is us we're so victimized 
America is so discriminatory towards us. And uh, and then after a terrorist attack, they'll trot out somebody from CARE or, you know, a Linda Sarsour type who will say that, you know, this has nothing to do with Islam. And if you say it does, you're bigoted. And, oh, by the way, the biggest threat we face is Islamophobia, not terrorism. And But then occasionally they'll get a little tripped up. This happens with CARE, which is the Council on Arab-Islamic, uh, sorry, on uh, American-Islamic relations. And occasionally they'll get a little tripped up and they'll have someone on who, when asked, you know, should it be, should it be illegal to criticize Islam? You know, should it be illegal to depict the prophet? They'll say, well, yeah, I mean, it's, we should all be respectful of each other. And sometimes it crosses a line into, uh, into defamation of religion or something. And you're like, hmm? Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What was that spokesperson for, uh, who's, who's a leftist and a Democrat supporter and, speaks for the Islamic community in some capacity in this country. Do you want to repeat that one? Go back and look at some of the exchanges over uh, the Danish cartoons, for example, and you can see, which was, what, back in 2010, I think, and you can see that there were people who were claiming to speak for the American Islamic community, and they were saying, well, you know, that this, we, we shouldn't, th- those cartoons, that should be condemned. Oh, okay, that's interesting. But Sarsour said that there should be jihad. She also said, and I, I played the audio for you last week, or I read it to you, I can't remember now, that there should be no assimilation of Muslims in this country. That, that's not the goal, to assimilate to Western culture. I forget the specifics. And the left has rushed to defend, especially the comment about jihad, uh, about how they need to be, uh, there needs to be a jihad right now in the era of Trump. Because they play this game of, oh, well, jihad means striving. It means internal struggle. Look, I I took a lot of these Middle Eastern studies classes back in college. I I remember. I I know the whole whole song and dance that the professors give you on this stuff. I'm quite familiar. And let me tell you something, all right? If you show up in, uh, I don't know, go go walk around the streets of... uh, Ramallah in the West Bank or or show up in in Pakistan pretty much anywhere and just be like hey what does jihad mean to you and and I I think you will more often or, or, or what is jihad first and foremost and you know some people it, maybe if you ask a scholar you'll get some answer about how it's internal striving for perfection in in the mold of of God's image or whatever and Allah uh, but if you just ask somebody, well, what is jihad? I think you'd probably hear that's holy war. And if you ask the people that are blowing themselves up, or rather if you just look at their videos, because it's tough to ask them, obviously, after they've blown themselves up. Uh, if you look at their videos, their martyrdom videos beforehand, or if you look at their the way they describe themselves, a lot of talk about jihad. So it's fascinating that there seems to be, outside of the U.S., so much confusion in the Muslim community about what this term really means, or at least that's what we're told here by people who are, I, I should note, self-appointed spokespersons for. And I, I think that it's not just within the Islamic community that the self-appointed spokespersons for various identity groups tend to be uh, very uh, unsavory characters. That, that's not just within, that's not just the Council on American-Islamic Relations that has not just shady ties, but shady positions as well in public. Uh, you'll have other people that are speaking for a community. And, you know, I saw this even with, with, for example, with Black Lives Matter and speaking for, 
and trying to say that they were at the vanguard of police reform. No, there are a lot of people working very hard on police reform. Have nothing to do with Black Lives Matter and reforming uh, incarceration and and dealing with police brutality incidents. No, I don't. I I don't cede that ground. I don't think we should cede that ground to uh, the protesters of of Black Lives Matter. Uh, but Sarsour and Jihad, that gets a lot of, as I said, nuanced treatment. There's an analysis done of that that would be uh, welcome on any college campus. You know, uh, Reza Aslan, formerly of CNN, and some uh, before they booted him, and some other people saying that Jihad is not war. What about Western civilization? Oh, I, I meant to pull this clip before. I know this is from our last kind of ties to our last segment, but here, here's what I mean. Here's a CNN White House correspondent talking about Trump's speech. Uh, play it, please. This is not a speech he could have given really any place else, and this is a white um, America, America first kind of speech. He was offering a very stark view, actually, about, um, you know, the, um, uh, about migration, about immigration, about other things. It was very, it wasn't a modern day speech, if you will. It was sort of a throwback speech, but he was offering a sense that you know, uh, be afraid of what is happening in the world. Uh, a white America, America first kind of speech. Um, uh, that's not that's not what I got from it. But interesting. That's uh, a CNN, a senior, a senior CNN reporter thinks so. And also, you had a former Obama advisor say that uh, you had a dark view of a clash of civilizations. Uh, the president's comment about the West and our ability to stand up to this challenge. I think some people are wondering how we in the U.S. under President Trump are defining that West. You see, what this really is is that Western civilization has ceased to be because Trump is president. That, that's what some in the press believe. Uh, or you can't define what it is. You can't know what it is under a President Trump. because it's, it's not possible because I guess they realize that he's a leader of the free world. And, oh, my gosh, that means that Trump is the leader of Western civilization right now, everybody. I'm just saying. It's true. Uh, okay, so I said I'd give you a couple of updates on some news stories. Uh, first one, I, I thought this was fascinating. New York Times has said that blaming Sarah, uh, blaming Sarah Palin in an editorial after the uh, Steve Scalise shooting, um, when it wasn't just Steve Scalise, obviously others were shot as well, but Scalise was the one who was in the most dire condition afterwards. Uh, six, uh, Yeah, Steve Scalise shooting. Um the New York Times wrote this editorial saying that there was a, quote, direct link between Palin's ads and the shooting uh, by Jared Lee Loeffner. So Palin is suing the New York Times because that's grotesque and completely demonstrably false. Oh, by the way, don't you notice a pattern here? So the New York Times writes this about Sarah Palin, which is clearly just it's it's ludicrous and demonstrably false. And I, I would argue malicious. I think it actually does meet the standard for. Uh, uh, for libel. Uh, I remember slander is spoken, libel is written. I always have to remind myself. Uh, but the other part of this, we mentioned with David French before, they had that, that article about the right-wing talk show guy that no one's ever heard of before who maybe maybe was the one who incited Hodgkinson. Uh, so they make these mistakes. They, they come to these completely bizarre conclusions uh, in a politicized fashion. Uh, just as they do with Trump uh, over and over again. So anyway, I, I think that the New York Times may be in some financial financial trouble here because the, saying that this was an honest mistake, a, a New York Times editorial that's gone through how many layers of review, how many people have read it, no one thought that maybe they should just check, just, just run a quick Google search on whether 
Sarah Palin did. Sarah, Sarah Palin was a quote direct link, a direct link. I mean, if the New York Times can get away with this, they can get away with saying, you know, so and so, an unindicted co-conspirator with that mass murderer guy, and then they go, oh no, sorry, there was no connection. But like, we just to- totes are bad. My 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 be my bad. You know, it just happens. So I don't think the Times is going to just be able to walk away from that one quite as easily. But another story I wanted to get to here. I've been talking to you about Charlie Gard, uh, the 11-month-old who was denied the right by the British government to travel to the United States for experimental treatment for his very rare and life-threatening Disease And the uh, European Court of Human Rights uh, ruled on this in, uh, back in June, late June, saying that, he, that the baby or the 11-month-old uh, should be pulled off of child support. I mean, sorry, pulled off of uh, life support. And it seems that there has been a change. Uh, Connie Yates, uh, guard's mother, told BBC Monday that their words turned it into an international issue. Um, there are a lot of people who are outraged about what is going on, and Britain's high court will hear the case in light of claims of new evidence from the Vatican's Children's Hospital. And doctors, uh, uh, doctors are still at this, that her hospital are saying that the treatment is unjustified, but um, there, this is still, there's still a, there's still a fighting chance, everybody. So, young Charlie Gard uh, might have the right. Well, he certainly has the right, but he might be allowed, right? That's the that's the problem with the British government here. Might be allowed to seek uh, treatment. So they have a couple of days to turn over medical evidence um, that they has, claim as a chance of improving, although not curing Charlie's condition, according to USA Today. Um, but you know, you, you never know with these things. And the outcry. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of stuff we talk about and. There's media gets involved, and, and all of a sudden, there's a lot of voices weighing in on social media and everywhere else. But because of the international outcry over Charlie Gard, at least there is a chance. So, uh, life has a chance here. This this child and his parents um, will have a will have a shot, and that that's meaningful. And it's because of people like you who paid attention and raised their voices on this. We've got much more. Ben Shapiro joining us in a few. Stay with me. Welcome back, everyone. We have been talking about healthcare a lot here on the show, and we're joined now by a healthcare expert to bring us up to speed on where everything stands right now. We have Dr. Scott Atlas on the line. He is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. His latest piece on foxnews.com, healthcare and health insurance are not the same thing. The fundamental disconnect in healthcare reform. Dr. Atlas, great to have you. Okay, thanks for being. Uh, thanks, thanks for inviting me. Uh, by the way, this is a point that I, I make frequently here in the place we call the Freedom Hut, which is that you can have a piece of paper that says you're you have some form of insurance, but that doesn't mean. And I know that there are government uh, offices and and political uh, folks who will say that, that then essentially mission accomplished. But that's just really the beginning, isn't it? Well, it's not. It shouldn't even be the goal, really. I mean, the goal is to have people have affordable health care itself, and labeling someone as insured that does not necessarily accomplish that goal. Uh, so, what do we have to do then? I mean, you're t- you you mentioned in your piece on Fox News the fundamental disconnect in health care reform. H- how do we connect it? 
Well, the, con- the, the, the disconnect is that the people doing the reforms think that the, the primary goal is to give people money or get people to be able to afford health insurance. And the real primary goal is to reduce the cost of medical care itself. And in that way, secondarily, the cost of insurance come down uh, and people are able to afford quality medical care. When you do things like the reform plans uh, being proposed right now, although it's true that there are some elements that are good, uh, a, a lot of uh, the problem is that they're trying to supplement people's ability to buy insurance in its current form instead of incentivizing competition in the markets and transparency and in getting people to care what health care costs. And then if they do care what health care costs consumers, they will shop around and make decisions based on value including based on price. Our current system it basically minimizes your out-of-pocket payments with either uh, relatively low deductibles uh, and uh, low co-payments. So it's like someone else is paying. So why would you care what it costs? And I think part of the problem here is that po- politically, definitely the Democrats and, and a lot of Republicans, a lot of the Republican Party, too, have signed on for this idea that, that the government has a responsibility to provide people either just with health insurance, full stop, or at least with uh, subsidies and and with a, a help to get health insurance, as opposed to what you're talking about, which is actually making health care itself more affordable. But I feel like politically people just, they when I say people, I mean a, a large portion of the country, large enough to prevent meaningful health care reform, would rather not be accountable for health care decisions. They'd just rather have somebody else handle it and somebody else uh, foot the bill. Well, I think that there certainly is a segment of the population that is like that. But I think that that part of the problem here, if you really want to get to the root of this, is that one of the biggest things that Republicans have failed at is educating the public about why their ideas of health reform are better than what we have now under the Obamacare law. Instead, they, the Republicans are spending their time, uh, which is necessary, uh, putting together a bill. But meantime, consumers, Americans, are inundated with a single view of this, and that is that something is being taken away from them. And it's actually quite the opposite. With the reforms that should be done, and some of which are being proposed in both the House and Senate versions of these proposals, with those reforms, people will get better access to care at lower costs. But uh, that that kind of argument is not really being made to the public. Speaking to Dr. Scott Atlas, he's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, right now, the Senate GOP is saying they might get a, a revised uh, version of the health care bill by the end of the week. Let me first ask you, you're somebody who is advocating for a more free market approach to health care in this country. Uh, what do you think of the Senate health care bill as we've seen it thus far? Well, I think the Senate's bill uh, and the House's bill actually have some good things. Uh, There's no question that uh, certain reforms are good, including uh, increasing the size of health savings accounts, which aren't for everyone necessarily in terms of a panacea, but they do allow people facilitate the idea that you actually have money you're spending directly and therefore you will care what it costs. And uh, there are getting rid of some of the regulatory kind of entanglements of Obamacare that, that actually caused higher prices to people. 
So they have to get rid of those harmful regulations and some of the taxes that were instituted. And I think both of these bills, the House and the Senate, uh, go partly toward that. The problem that the bills uh, have is that they rely on something called a, a refundable tax credit, which is basically instead of focusing like a laser, as they like to say, on getting uh, competition in the market and getting the cost of health care to come down, they're propagating the prices of health care by giving people money to buy health insurance that is over bloated with mandates and uh, too expensive and including uh, the regulations of having, you know, minimizing out-of-pocket care. So they need to go further on that. But uh, what they're proposing is better, certainly better. There is unquestionably better than what we have right now under Obamacare. If you could add one thing to what the Senate bill has already done, uh, if, if you could just write in anything you want, Dr. Atlas, what would it be? Well, I, I wouldn't give tax credits. I would focus on uh, getting uh, much more competition in the marketplace and getting people to getting everyone to be able to have health savings accounts, first of all, including Medicare. You want to have all consumers of health care care about what things cost. And seniors, of course, which are Medicare patients, spend more money on health care than anybody else. So you wouldn't want to exclude them. You want to include health savings accounts for them. And uh, you want to make Medicaid and Medicare open to private insurance options. There's no reason why we should propagate a system for poor people under Medicaid where they have a parallel substandard health system. Yes, we want to help poor people get uh, be able to afford medical care, but let's move them into the same medical care system that we as non-poor people have. We don't want to propagate a failing program like Medicaid in its, in its uh, conventional sense that we have right now. So I would do those, those things. I would make the goal here to me is to get everybody to have access to the world's best health care system, which is the United States. That's the world's best medical care. And we want to do that by increasing the market mechanisms that reduce cost and increase quality, just like they do with every other good or service in the United States. Dr. Scott Atlas of the Hoover Institution. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Thank you. Team, uh, coming up here in just a few minutes, we have a friend, Ben Shapiro, who's going to be lighting it up on uh, all the biggest news items of the day and more. He's, of course, the editor-in-chief of The Daily Wire. Uh, We'll be talking to Ben about uh, everything in just a few minutes. Stay with me. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for some Ben Shapiro. He is editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show. He writes at National Review as well. We've got a lot to talk about. Ben, thanks so much for joining the show again. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, all right. First, the, the the Russia thing. I I just want your your reaction to the the meeting with this lady over the weekend. Is this something or is this nothing? So everyone's stupid. Is as, as always. My commentary begins with that preface. Um, you know, I think that the it's something for Trump Jr. It's something for Manafort. It's something for Kushner. Uh, I'm not sure that it's anything beyond that. Meaning that if somebody these are the three top campaign officials, or at least two of the three top campaign officials uh, in the Trump campaign at the time. And they're all in a meeting with one person who they say was a big nothing, but nobody had any clue who this person was. I don't believe that story. I think that 
if some rando walked in off the street and said, I'd like to have a meeting with Kushner, Manafort, and Trump Jr., uh, he'd be thrown out. So clearly somebody had said this person is plausible and has information about Hillary Clinton. Uh, Trump Jr. said that that was the enticement to go to the meetings, that this person had information about Hillary Clinton. Uh, if the person had no bona fides other than I know somebody who was associated with someone from the 2013 Miss Universe contest, that's not really a very strong pitch. So I think there's more to that story. But the media have jumped to this means that there was overt Trump-Russia collusion and information passed hand that there was actual planning and involvement. And there I see no evidence of anything. I mean, the fact is that Trump Jr. says, and, and so does everybody else at the meeting, that nothing happened, uh, that there was no actual information, nothing actually got passed. Um, you know, so the, the media's attempt to turn this into sort of the first step in this broad plan of collusion between Trump campaign and Russia, I don't see that without a second step. Otherwise, it just looks like an isolated stupidity from Trump Jr. Do you, do you buy any of this, that, that it was a uh, uh, what we would call a, a dangle uh, in, in Intel speak, somebody who was, who was sent specifically for the purpose of putting out disinformation? Because I seem to see that was, at least some people were offering that up. So, so this, this lawyer, uh, Ms. I'm going to get her name wrong. I can't even remember where it is right now. But whatever. This Russian this Russian lawyer lady is sent specifically yeah, like to... Te- or something. Yeah, yeah v- v- Veselnitskaya, Natalia Veselnitskaya, that she's sent uh, just to be there, essentially. That, that the whole purpose of her getting the meeting was to get the meeting so that later on they could say, see, he's meeting with the Russians. That that doesn't seem to make sense to I me either. No, that, that, that doesn't wash for me at all. That was Ryan's Priebus's excuse yesterday on TV, and it was put out there by Circa, and I, I don't buy that. And the reason I don't buy that is because there's no payoff. If you want to actually hurt Trump, you assume they would have dumped that before the election, or if you want to really hurt him, you do it after the election, right? I mean, why wouldn't you dump that now or dump that six months ago, like right after his inauguration? So it's, it's the, the, none of the story washes. As always with, with Team Trump, I'm tempted to always attribute action to stupidity rather than malice. Uh, so I, I'm going to go stupidity rather than malice here. Uh, I think that the, the only person in that room, you know, Kushner, Trump Jr., Manafort, who I would be comfortable attributing malice to is Manafort just because he has long-standing documented ties with the Russian government and the Ukrainians. But, um, you know, again, there's been nothing proved there. So I, I don't know, you know what we're supposed to say other than show me the evidence. And uh, what do you think about the latest on the Comey memos here? People are saying that there was some classified information contained in the memos, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he leaked classified information, or does it? What do you think? No, it doesn't. I mean, and I think, again, everybody's temptation is to jump too far. So there's classified information in the memos. That means that he has to be careful about who he shows them to. Uh, They were judged by the FBI to be government documents. That's the second issue, right, which goes to his employment agreement, that you're not allowed to take government documents and reveal them to anybody. But um, as far as classified information, no, I don't think that the evidence is – I don't think the evidence is totally incomplete that that he was spreading classified information in violation of the law. I mean, he's he's a smart enough guy, I think, to know – that he doesn't want to get caught up in that. I mean, he had just finished investigating Hillary Clinton. So yeah, I, I, I can't imagine for a second that he's actually giving classified information in, in written form to people and going out there and saying, oh, yeah, I gave this to my friend to leak to the press, and it was classified. So, so just because there was information in some memos, if he had totally unclassified memos and handed those to somebody to give to the press, that may be, as you point out, a violation of his FBI agreement, but that is not necessarily a problem for him from a, a, a criminal espionage act standpoint. Exactly. So, again, I think that everyone wants to jump one step too far in order to defend their side. But, again, I, both these stories, the Comey story and the Trump Jr. story, I just, there's not enough there for us to actually make some sort of hard and fast call, I think. 
We're speaking to Ben Shapiro. He's uh, editor-in-chief of Daily Wire. Dot com And also you can uh, hear his latest on the Ben Shapiro show. Uh, ben, what do you make of the current situation the Republicans find themselves in when it comes to health care? Uh, I mean, I think that the, the biggest problem here is that Republicans for a very, very long time have been lying about what their actual principles were on health care. So it was easy to oppose Obama, but they never held any principles in common on health care. So you had President Trump spend the entire election cycle saying that he wanted to repeal Obamacare, but he didn't actually agree with any of the basic principles of repealing Obamacare. He still wanted pre-existing conditions. He still wanted everybody covered. He still wanted to make sure that, that, the, that the federal government was picked up the tab for a lot of this stuff. So, you know, when, when you say that you want to repeal and replace something, and then you replace it with what you're repealing, I, I fail to see how exactly that's a, a big win. Meanwhile, the Republican caucus is so fractured, instead of just coming around together and saying, okay, we're going to repeal and then we'll figure out replace, by campaigning on repeal and replace, which is something that it was a formulation that was come up with, with by Rand Paul and by President Trump. By campaigning on that, they basically assured they're not even going to be forced to repeal. They, they can just come up with either some very weak plan and try and ram it through, or they can do nothing. And those, those seem to be their two choices. Where do you think the Trump agenda stands right now when it comes to uh, uh, the budget and taxes, by the way? I, I feel like if we can't get an agreement on health care, there's no prayer of getting that other stuff done in the next few months. Well, it's going to be very cool because the fact is that you need 51 votes uh, under reconciliation for tax reform. But reconciliation requires that you actually have to get a score from the CBO that shows that you're not increasing the national debt. Well, the entire plan for doing health reform first was that you were going to save a bunch of money on health reform and then you'd use that money and apply it toward tax reform. If you don't get health reform done, then there is no money to be saved on tax reform because the CBO is always going to score a tax decrease as an increase in the deficit, at least in the short term. So then you need 60 votes. Well, the chance of them passing a tax reform with 60 votes are nil. So it's, it's a mess. I mean, it's a real mess. And I don't know how they're going to be able to ram anything through. You know, this is one area where presidential leadership would be really useful. I mean, on health care, it would be great. if, Like, let me put it this way. If it were President Ted Cruz, which, of course, it isn't. But if it were President Ted Cruz, so I think that the Senate would have repealed Obamacare, I do. Right? Because I think he would have made that his central plank. I think he would have made that his central goal. And I think that's a lot easier of a central goal than replace and repeal and all, all this nonsense. What do you say to people who respond, Ben, I'm sure you hear this, I'm sure people write this and occasionally on Twitter and Facebook say nasty things about this because, you know, that's what happens, uh, that say that, well, repeal's impossible, Ben. Come on. Well, I mean, I don't understand why repeal would be impossible. I mean, you had every Republican in the country campaigning on repeal, and all you have to do is put it to an up or down vote. But the problem is that President Trump doesn't actually want a repeal. If he wanted a repeal, he could probably push for it, but he doesn't want it because he's afraid of the political fallout that will uh, that will occur after the repeal. Look, you're, you're going to get bad headlines anyway. Like, this is something Republicans have to get over. And honestly, I'm sort of shocked that, that President Trump hasn't gotten over it because it's not as though the press has treated President Trump with any sort of kindness, obviously. So if you're going to get treated badly, you may as well do what you want to do. But Republicans... I think, are so terrified that they're going to repeal and then a bunch of people are going to get kicked off Medicaid that they're going to be held responsible for that at the ballot box. It'll be a bunch of bad headlines. They fail to understand they're going to get the bad headlines regardless of what they do. So they can either make the situation better and get the bad headlines or make the situation worse and get bad headlines. Last one for you, Ben. Chelsea Clinton has said that uh, Donald Trump is giving the country away. Some people, and I know you're up on DailyWire.com with a response to this, have some have some stuff to say about Chelsea Clinton and pointing fingers about people giving away the country for cash. Yeah, I mean, her, her, she, should, she should look at her mother. I mean, uh, one of the things that is so irritating about the Clintons is they just won't go away. And so Chelsea 
she said something about how she was upset that Ivanka, it was all in response to Ivanka taking Trump's seat at the G20. And Trump tweeted something out about the Clintons because Trump's go-to is always the Clintons. And then Chelsea tweeted something in response about how my mother never would have relied on me that way. Okay, it's called the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. Chelsea didn't get her name on the foundation because of her vast qualifications, experience, and accomplishments. So the, the whole thing is ridiculous. But, I mean, you know, I saw a story today about uh, a person waking up uh, in, uh, in the woods with, uh, and heard, heard a crunching noise. It turned out a bear was eating his head. And I think that that's basically the best metaphor I have for 2017 at this point. We just keep waking up and a bear is eating our head. All right, Ben Shapiro. Check his out. Uh, check out his latest uh, at thedailywire.com where he's editor-in-chief. Ben, great to have you, sir. Thanks so much for calling in. Thanks a lot. Be well. Uh, team, as always, thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me in the Freedom Hut. Really good to have you with me here. Uh, please do download the podcast. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. And uh, until tomorrow night, my friends, as always, Shields High.